0: Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One. Welcome back to another episode of our Boxing One podcast. And today we've got a, a pretty special guest, a, a longtime friend of mine, a guy who finally excited to be collaborating with on the pod here, Jackson Frank, uh, Uprocks Liberty Ballers. He, he's been writing everywhere and, and really putting a lot of great content out for the last few years. But Jackson, how are you doing?
1: Doing well. I appreciate you having me on. I'm glad we could uh, we could connect and and talk some NBA. It's I mean, what four days in, five days into the season now. It's been been fun. First kickoff. I'm glad. To, I'm excited to talk about some uh, some stuff with you today.
0: Yeah, appreciate that. We're a few days here into the season, and what that gives us is a little bit of context to see how our hunches about the the summer offseason changes might have worked out. Just to get a, a little bit more content to talk about, as opposed to having this be 100 what we prognosticate, you know, we're a game or two, maybe three for a couple teams into the season where we can have a little bit of context to bring to the table. So what Jackson and I are going to do today is talk about three teams that we're each most fascinated by in the NBA. And that can mean we have no idea how to evaluate them. They're a a fringe playoff team or a fringe contender that is just so intricate into their, their team building process and how things may play out. In either conference, that they're so fascinating, we have to watch them. We we didn't define that for ourselves, and and gave Jackson a ton of of leeway to to pick that uh, that direction that he wanted to go. But Jackson, before we get to that, we have a question that we ask every single one of our guests here on the Box and One podcast, and it actually came up this week, so appropriate time <laughs> to be, be going over this. But the question is: You're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball.
1: Do you foul? Yeah, absolutely. And as you, I mean, as you said, uh, it came up in, you know, that that Sixers Nets game on Friday evening and, you know, you don't expect Seth Curry to miss a free throw, but um, that's part, I mean, you do it to prevent a team from having a chance to tie the game, but also because you never know a guy misses a free throw and obviously maybe you can get the offensive rebound, but uh, yeah, I absolutely, absolutely go for it, especially just with how many, how often teams can, you know, call timeout and put five three point threats on the floor. Maybe it's a little different, say 10 years ago 12 years ago but I think especially now and I'm sure even back then I probably you know, I can't say for certain but especially now with the fact that you can go five out so often um, and just I think some teams are really really creative with play calling and get really clean looks you got to be fouling on those things and and whatnot as you said it came up in a big primetime game on, on Friday evening and and uh, it worked out because in part because the guy missed a free throw but you know ended up working out regardless so I definitely would foul. It, it's so different the NBA is very different than other levels right with that auto advance rule if you have a
0: timeout left that gets you a little bit farther up so you know, depending on the level that people are, are coaching or playing at the answers are going to be differently it it also came up in the Knicks Celtics game on Wednesday night at the end of regulation there where you know the Celtics had to go full court the the Knicks and Evan Fournier got caught a little bit out of position and uh, they, they got a three to send it to overtime but Always one of those questions that uh, that is a head scratcher. And believe it or not, some of our guests have been uh, given different answers on that one. So there is nothing universal. But Jackson, moving to the part that, that we're really here to talk about tonight. The three teams that we're all most fascinated by. The tie always goes to the guests. We're going to let you go first. <laughs> Who's the number one team that Jackson Frank is fascinated
1: by for the 21-22 NBA season? Yeah, this was such a tough question to answer because, you know, I've been either There's reasons I want to watch every team this year, but I think for me, I went with the Warriors. Um, you know, we've gotten to see them twice on national television now, a couple of wins against the LA teams, a couple of very fun games, honestly, um, for, for different reasons, obviously against the Clippers, it was the Steph show and against, uh, it was still kind of the Steph show against the Lakers, but in a different sense, he was, he was getting all the attention to making things happen. So. Um, I think you really th- found they found some stuff toward the end of last season. They closed the year 15 and five. Um, we're one of the best defenses uh, and one of the better offenses as well down that stretch. And you know what they did this summer is they realized okay, we need players who kind of fit our system. That's quick decision making. It's cutting. It's being good screeners. Things like that. So they sign guys like Otto Porter. They're going to give Juan Toscano Anderson a bigger role. Jordan Poole is a bigger role after you know, the his, his second half breakout. So um those are some of the things that really interest me uh obviously Draymond has his shortcomings but he is still a fabulous player on both ends obviously or more so on defense but you know still does some awesome things offensively um so a lot of a lot of interesting reasons to be to be intrigued by them and kind of the direction they take um you know they have a lot of veterans but also they have three lottery picks you know with Wiseman Moses Moody and and uh, Jonathan one of which in Moody who's kind of right on the fringes of the rotation through two games
0: it's it's crazy to me how wide the variance could be in this Warriors season, and how much of that is going to depend on Clay Thompson and his health. You know, they're fascinating in a way because we don't really know what to expect from Clay when he comes back. Is he going to look like the same old Clay? Having two years off from NBA action is not easy to to rebound from. And, and two two and a
1: half. Right. I mean, yeah. December return. He, he, tore, he tore his for ACL right in the, in the yeah. June of 2019. So. Anymore. in one and a
0: half half years. It's 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 going to be really hard to bank on the Warriors being a contender um, without knowing what Clay looks like. But if he does come back and, and perform at those levels, you got to believe that Steph Clay, Draymond, uh, a well-engaged Andrew Wiggins and the litany of veteran role players or, or some young guys that have been able to come in and give them a spark is going to make them deep enough and dangerous enough to to win playoff series and potentially You know, push for that NBA championship again, which the last time we saw this Warriors team at full strength, they were a dynasty. They made five straight NBA finals appearances, and and there's no way to really know how they're going to be able until at least until Clay comes back, uh, balance out the, the necessities of developing some of those young guys and taking advantage of the minutes before Clay comes back and having to put themselves in a position where they've won enough games so that once clay is back there within striking range of the the top of the conference, I I always find that dichotomy between getting talented young players and then sitting them because your team's really good. Very, very challenging from an organizational perspective.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm very curious kind of, you know, I know, I think there's some reports around this draft, this past draft, that they were trying to move some of those picks for, for another win now player. And I'm curious, like, you know, if they're, if we're hitting the trade deadline and they're, you know, sitting in the four spot and they're within striking of that one seed, or maybe they're a little lower and they're kind of on the, on the fringes of the the play. And like, do they, they try and package, you know, a couple of Wiseman, Moody and Kaminga, and maybe a future pick for, for a a good, good player. You know, uh, after I watched that first game with the Lakers, you know, what they really miss I think is they don't have a big man who can credibly finish plays consistently. Right. Like they, when they go small with Raymond very much, does isn't really much of a score even, I mean, Looney's the same way, right? Like, I mean, Luna's guy's going to give you maybe five to six points. Most of his offensive value is going to come from screening, uh, and so like I wonder if Christian Wood a guy becomes available, like I know he's very talented, he's really good, um, but he also helps the young guy, young guys in Houston make things easier for them, right? Um, but a play finisher who's great at the rim but can also sorts the floor, that makes some sense. No idea if he's available, but I think he's someone that if he was available, the Warriors have the kind of the firepower to to go to you know entice entice what he, what Houston might be looking for because I think you know Moses Moody's looked pretty solid in his what, 25 minutes of run or so, like, um, that, that's a guy I think could really help them, you know, kind of be a complimentary wing around the, the ball dominant players of, you know, Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. So, um, by no means, I know, don't do, I know Christian Wood's gonna be available, but it's just a guy that really came to mind because they just need someone who can finish plays, you know, above the rim a little more once once Steph is double and triple T, beyond know, on the arc so often.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought that up because there's, for me, it's year eight of this Warriors dynasty under mm-hmm. Steve Kerr now. Um, and the one thing we haven't really seen is a stretch big, somebody who can play the five, be that screen and roll and and catch-and-finish guy near the basket, but also provide valuable spacing out to the perimeter. You know, Maybe Mo Spates was that guy off the bench way back when, and Bielitsa is more perimeter than catch-and-finish and anything like that right now. But if there's the opportunity to go a little bit bigger, without sacrificing some of that floor spacing, right? Because right now when you have Looney and Draymond out there, you essentially have two non-shooters. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to play Draymond in that 0.4 or, or, or even 0.5 spot, what about putting another combo 4-5 out there or at least somebody who can defend the 5 in some stretch and be able to to play on the perimeter offensively? I, I always think Miles Turner is one <laughs> name that I would love to see. And he just popped off uh, yeah. a couple nights ago. I had a 40-piece there. Uh, but he's one of those most underrated guys in the league by my measure who would be pretty good in, in golden state defensively. And if he can space the floor on the perimeter with his shooting, I'm really fascinating to see how their offensive dynamic would change if they tried to integrate a guy like him in there. But, but I think your, your instinct is, is kind of right on there with, let's add another bigger body in there so that they can hold up against some of those other Western conference teams, because playing Draymond at the five for 15-20 minutes a night continuously against Denver with Jokic against Utah with Gobert like at some point that feels like they're going to crack
1: yeah And I think you know I think Anthony Slater of the athletic had an article this offseason maybe preseason or training camp that they're going to want they're going to play Draymond a lot that's like rather than having it be you know just a weapon in their back pocket they're going to go to it a lot and it makes sense because Draymond at the five maximizes their chances of winning but as you said you feel like you're playing with fire a little bit there right like if you don't and even beyond like they just they just need a little more stylistic diversity or like not just for the sake of it but just to have different matchups there Um, because unfortunately it seems like at some point every year Kevon Looney has an injury that takes him out for at least a stretch of games and you know however you feel about James Wiseman as a player he didn't help them last year like he just doesn't really fit that that system of being the quick decision maker and you know when he's trying to experiment become that that good floor spacer it's a lot of shots you don't really want a possession ending in and so like if that's the guy you have to rely on for big minutes whenever he's back you know you don't feel great so just another big man obviously ideally the stretch big would be there but just someone else who can absorb minutes and be a viable rotation big with some size even if it's a lesser trade than the ones we've mentioned i think would really benefit them yeah
0: and i i'm still on the the wiseman train like i very highly believe in him but he's not ready yet and this is a Warriors team that's trying to win a championship and, and at least maximize who they can be competitively. So well, that's, that's always a dichotomy that
1: you have to wrap your mind around there.
0: Uh, I'm curious, are you a Jordan Poole guy? Is, is...
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was generally a fan of his, you know, after the bubble last year, or the G League bubble, I should say. I was just impressed with the growth he had. Um, but then I did a really big deep dive this this summer. If, if anyone's curious, listen, you can find my article on Time Up Rocks. Uh, just loved how he how well he fit into the Warriors offense. Um, has a lot of the same principles as Steph, obviously to a much lesser degree, but the off-ball movement, the cutting, the screening, the quick decision-making um, isn't the passer or he doesn't have kind of the the downhill pressure. Looks honestly a little more twitchy this year than he did last year, which is interesting to see, but um, I really think he makes sense. Um, you know, was great. It was very good in that first game. Not so much in the second game if the shot wasn't falling against the Clippers, but I really think he makes sense in that if he takes another leap as a little more on-ball creation than we saw last year there was a lot of off-ball stuff. Um, he could really kind of help buoy some of those non-Steph minutes that we see at the start of every quarter since Steph does the 12 minutes and then I think four or five and then comes back in with through about halfway through the quarter.
0: All right. Your your piece on Pool is really what swung me in his favor a little bit more. Like I was on the fence about him. He's a solid bench scorer, but are he and Steph right guys to – play next to each other. And, and part of the reason I was so concerned about the Warriors off season and wasn't really sure how to project them coming in was because, you know, they're pretty thin in their backcourt when it comes to depth, they added a lot of guys who are probably best playing the four and they have mm. a little bit of switchable tendencies, but their roster is stacked with guys that can do. It. They brought in Iguodala. They, they brought in Otto Porter. Bielitsa a little bit is more of a four than a five. Even, you know,
1: Juan um, Toscano Anderson.
0: Juan Toscano Anderson. That's who was yeah. on top of my head there. Like, even he's more of a four than a five in a lot of senses. And, and the thing with Clay coming back from an injury with me is he may need to slide up a spot in the rotation if he misses some of that lateral quickness, if he just needs a little bit more help defending on the perimeter. And I was really surprised the Warriors didn't address that this offseason. But to me, it shows like what you were talking about and in a belief in pool that he's the right guy that's going to be able to not just carry the offense when Steph is out, but be able to play some
1: minutes with him at the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you look at their roster, like who, you know, Damian Lee is probably their other their two. And I think, you know, he, I, I think Lee is a rotation guy, but he's kind of toward the end of your rotation, right? So um, like he's, when the jumper's following, he's good. He missed a lot of open shots in that game against the Warriors, unfortunately, or against the Lakers, but good cutter, um, decent defender. So yeah, they're they're pretty thin there, I think. It'd be great if Otto Porter of five years ago was on this team, just in terms of movement skills. But um, you know, I think he can still shoot and it's still a cerebral, cerebral player. But the movement skills are just not there. It doesn't really get much lift off the ground. It isn't very quick laterally anymore. Um, still has value, I think. And I think you saw him play a lot better in that second game. But uh, yeah, they they don't have a lot of depth of the two and the three, and so which isn't terrible because you can play Steph and Pool, who are two of your top four or five players. I mean, obviously Steph is Steph, but. I don't know how people feel about pool exactly, but one of your better players. So um, it helps a little bit, but yeah, you would love male game. Maybe Moses Moody works his way higher up into the the hierarchy of the rotation. That would help. You know, he's, he's got good length, but he's still pretty slender and he's about, I don't know exactly what he's about 205. They have him on basketball reference. So um, that would help too. But I I agree that, you know, Clay coming off two injuries, you know, and not just, I mean, Clay is also what he's now, he's going to be he's 30, he's going to turn 32 in February um that's not i mean old by any means but uh you know when, when you pair it with two and a half years off and a couple of pretty serious lower body injuries um you do have some worries about his movement skills which i think it already declined a little bit from maybe let's say 2017 Clay, in terms of how overwhelming he was on the ball laterally so um yeah you definitely would prefer to have a little more depth there and so that's why i'm just so curious to see you know how the season unfolds for the warriors and what the front office does because i think there's a little bit of you know. Like kind of, I not want to say tug of war, but I think there's a little bit of dissonance between maybe the front office wants to see it through with these lottery picks that they got, and you know Kerr and company and the and the, the team or the players, I should say, are you know fo- rightfully focused on maximizing now, and so um, that makes it tough. I obviously would side with the players because when you have Steph, you should never say, oh, "Let's see, let's see what we can get out of this guy that we drafted 14th overall." Um, no, no disrespect to Moses Moody, but. Um, you got to go for it now. You know, it's not—it's not like a guy who was a top 30 player. they trying to maximize. They're trying to maximize Steph Curry. He's a conservatively top 20 player ever. I would say top 10, top 12. So he's uh, still kind of right on the cusp of his prime. So it's kind of just interesting to see how they go about that.
0: Yeah, that's a, a dangerous tight wire, uh, high <laughs> wire that they're that they're walking there. But uh, you know, with the with the Warriors having those championship aspirations, I'm, I'm moving now to the the first team that I picked that I was most fascinated by, and, and very similarly kind of a wide range of outcomes that you might be able to think of. For me, it's the Toronto Raptors. Last year was just not a good year for them. And and it's so hard for me to try to figure out how much of that was because their franchise was more interrupted by COVID than anybody else. And that's not in terms of games lost or, you know, start stops with guys going in and out of protocols. It's that they weren't even home. They They were in Tampa all of last year, which was a hockey city. They won the Stanley Cup. And there was just very little local uh, love that the Raptors were able to get. This is a team that had Kyle Lowry, and now he's gone. They've brought in Scotty Barnes, and he looked fantastic in the preseason as well as the first couple games here. I mean, the Raptors' defense to start the year has been incredibly, incredibly strong. And they're doing this without Pascal Siakam for a little chunk of time at the start of the year but they could get to a, a point where their front court is Barnes, OG Ananobi, and Siakam. And they're, <laughs> they're mixing in a little bit of precious Achua in there, but those are such long athletic toolsy guys that can overwhelm you in switching schemes. They all rebound and run a little bit. And Ananobi looks like he might take the next step as a scorer. Like, are we collectively sleeping on the Raptors? How good can they be? And, and beyond that, do they have a vested interest in maybe getting another lottery pick and another really young guy to pair with Scotty Barnes in the long term where you know, they, they're going to be good enough after this year when Scotty definitely matures into the role that he's going to need to to be an NBA caliber player. Uh, they're going to be too good to get themselves another crack at the lottery. If they want one great alpha to continue to build around, this is the year to get it. And are they going to be too good to get themselves there? Or do they want to be too good to get themselves out of that range? I have no idea what to think of the Raptors.
1: Yeah. It's, it's funny. You mentioned OG looks so awesome in preseason. The first two regular season games have been a lot less kind to put it <laughs> broadly. Um, unfortunately, you see a lot of the issues that have, you know, hampered in, in previous years. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, they're playing so aggressively on defense, like in their blow went over the Celtics on Friday, they forced 25 turnovers um, they're pre- like they're pressuring every single player. Like they had Fred VanVleet pressuring Dennis Schroeder from 50 feet away. They're helping on the strong side a lot too, which is, you know, for people who talk basketball, like generally that's something that most teams don't adhere to. You want to stay in the corners on those. Um, but they're encouraging their players. As far as I can tell, they're encouraging that. Like, because every single player was doing it from the stuff I've seen, um, which generally means it's a scheme thing. I don't know for sure, but they're playing so aggressively. They're getting out and running running a lot because they have to. They don't have a lot of half-court creationists. Like even with Siakam, they're probably a little light on it. Uh, or they are a little lineup. And I mean, even with Kyle Lowry. I mean, you saw two years ago when they were really good and you know, won however many games and made the second round, you know, their offense was their downfall when they lost the Celtics. And so now you take out Siakam and Lowry for the time being. Um, they got to go get out and run as much as possible and create early offense. You know, Van Vliet, you know, pushing the tempo, of, you know, Scotty Barnes pushing the tempo too. So yeah, I'm really interested to see what what they bring. Um, you know, I I enjoy, you know, I enjoyed watching the Raptors Celtics game. That was the first one I I caught of them. i you know, they've only played two. Through through four or five days, but um, I guess they're playing as we record right now. They're playing the Mavericks, but um, so I'll see. I'll catch up on that at some point, I'm sure. But um, yeah, I think you know it's. I am curious to see kind of how how much can the defense influence and fuel the offense, right? Because if they're having to take the ball to the basket a ton, a ton, a ton, um, they're probably going to have more games like we saw against against the Wizards, where they scored eighty three points. And I don't I don't have the offensive rating up there, but um, I, I'm just going to go on a limb. And say, regardless of the pace, 83 points gives you a very, very poor offensive rating. So, yep. um, really fascinating team to kind of see that. You know, we talk about the tight, the tight wire of youth versus development or training versus now with the Warriors. You know, the the defense versus the offense pull, push and pull with the Raptors. I think is really, really interesting. It's a fine line, um, and so I'm curious to kind of see how they go about it because I, they just, it was really fun to see them play this this breakneck aggressive aggressive style with with everything they're doing those long range you guys and then. Ben Vliet is just a killer on defense, despite being 5'10", 5'11". He's so, fe- he's so feisty and handsy and is really good in transition, too. So, yeah, they're really interesting. It was it was cool to watch that approach for the first time uh, against the Celtics.
0: They're they're digging really hard from one pass away. They go, whether it's middle drive or baseline drive, if they have one guy from one pass away, he's trying to make a play on the basketball. Go there, <laughs> get two hands on it, tie it up, just get out and run in transition. Achua, Barnes, Ananobi, whoever gets it,
1: they're going. And it's a fun style to watch. Um, and they're yeah. crashing the class a lot too offensively. They're throwing all those big wings in there to i mean the amount of times in that Celtics game where it was like there's seven guys in the paint on a play because they're just trying to just mash the inside and you know, get a bunch of guys in there just one of the shots goes in and one of their guys gets the ball. Yeah. Um, they're doing a lot of that. It's a funky style. It's really cool to kind of watch Nick Nurse, who's you know been lauded for a lot of this innovation over the past few years, try it with the with a different roster. And so far, it's you no know, one-on-one split results, but it's yeah. been cool to see. Well, they're, they're fun and ugly at the same time. You, <laughs> yes. you can't say that
0: about many teams. But the thing that I wonder, you know, back to that long-term focus with the Raptors, we heard a lot of reports or doesn't, don't know how valuable or, or on on target they were heading into the draft that the Warriors might have been targeting a guy like Siakam. And with him being out right now, if they really like the young blend and collection of guys, do they look at getting him back, trying to maximize him? and then trade him and use that as an opportunity to say, hey, we've got the front court of our future with Ananobi and Barnes at the three, four spots. We can plug and play the right guy for us at the five. We don't think Siakam could be that. And we might need a little bit more shooting or at least another primary creator to help us out with our half-court offense. To me, that's one of those fascinating decisions <laughs> that not many people are talking about right now, that Masai Ujiri probably around the holidays is going to have to start thinking about it. And, and it honestly is going to depend on how well they perform at the start of the season. They're off to a, a good start, but it, we're a couple of games in, you know, <laughs> at Thanksgiving, that's going to change. And December 15th, when new signed players are going to be eligible to be traded, that's going to change. I just, I have no idea how they marry the offense with the defense. How they marry the long term planning with the short term planning. Because it seems like, regardless of how many games they win in the regular season, they're not going to be a, a top contender in the Eastern Conference because when the game slows down and is played at much more of a half court pace in the postseason, they don't have the guys that can execute.
1: Yeah. And I think you know, what's interesting about the Siakam stuff, and I think there were some reports, I think Jake Fisher from Bleach Report was the one that was was shepherding that, and he's been on point, you know, basically the entire offseason, now extending the regular season. Um, I think, but also, I think someone, someone from the New York Times wrote a really cool piece about Siakam within the last month or so, and um, and I, I kind of, I wouldn't say put to bed, but it seems like, you know, at one point maybe Siakam was not enthralled with, with Toronto, but now he seems to really be embracing that role again. Um, but regardless, I think what's interesting is, like if Siakam is someone that they're looking to move, then you got to think that Van Vliet's someone, right? Because those right. guys, I think, were roughly the same age, 27, 28. Uh, and they're both really, really good players. They're both, you know, right. I think, you know, fringe all-stars roughly. I mean, I'm curious to see what what version of Siakam we get. Is it the one that was a, a clear-cut all-star and borderline all-NBA guy before the bubble? I mean, literally made an all-NBA team um, because they were voted oh. on before the bubble. Or is it the guy who, you know, Definitely definitely better than what we saw in the bubble. And he's talked about that quarantine really and that isolation. just affected him. Um whereas the guy we saw last year, who was, I think his season last year honestly was overstating in how poor it was for his standards um, because he missed some game winners and had a couple of gaffes in that sense. But um, if we see the the pre-bubble version of him, I think the Raptors could be pretty dang good. You, a guy who can get downhill can, you know, he had the pull-up jumper working a decent bit, you know, at that stretch. Um, you know, it was has improved as a passer too. Like he's better at capitalizing on. I think that was honestly the biggest growth last year. I think he got better at passing on um, that kind of went under the radar because of his scoring struggles. So I think part of it is, you know, part of their future is going to be determined by like who Pascal Siakam is. Is he a, a top 40-ish guy or is he the top 20, top 25 guy we saw for, for about 55, 60 games back in 2019, 20. And so uh, that's, that's really interesting to me. And, you know, for everyone involved, I, I hope we get to see the, the, the 2019, 20 pre-bubble version because it was really, really fun. And Siakam at his best is a really, really, fascinating and enjoyable two-way force well I think part of the blame has to has to
0: fall on Zach Lowe's shoulders because he alerted everybody in the world to how much Siakam loves the spin move loves (laughs) the spin move and once that word got out his half-court production started to fall a little bit but uh, now the only reason I, I think of Siakam as being a little bit more of a trade candidate is because it's a little bit choppy of a fit with him and Barnes Together in in Mm at some point. I think that they may run into the fact where neither of them are really a five and neither of them are really a three. And can we really get away with playing both of them and in an OB or or really just playing both of them in a big at the same time? You can
1: you can see that they're kind of using Barnes how they they use Siakam like early into Siakam's rise, like a lot of transition handling, the occasional. Off the dribble. So, I mean, Barnes is already shooting off the dribble way more than than, than Pascal did when he first broke into the rotation. But you definitely see a lot of similarities in that sense, like early on, how they use Siakam a lot. Especially that first, the, the breakout year when Siakam became a rotation player, not when he won most improved, but he was a transition dynamo, and that's what you saw, using seen from Scotty a lot. So, um, yeah, there's definitely some crossover. And I think it, you know, it's, I wonder, like, when Pascal comes back, do they say, like they kind of just give it some time, but like at the very least, say this is a great mentor for Scotty to have—a guy who's grown his offensive game a ton, was a defensive first player when he when he first entered the league. Um, like, can we just kind of let this be a mentorship thing um, f- for the time being? And that's something that I think is really going to benefit Scotty, honestly. And so, but I do I do definitely see that. Like, at the very least they they see these guys as similar players in terms of you know usage and impact uh, or impact style, I should say. Um, and so you just wonder like is that something where you're going to have to move on from Siakam because Scotty is too good? Or is it is, or maybe Siakam isn't quite the player you want him to be, uh, or is it that there's a perfect blend there where Scotty is good, but Siakam is really, really good. And so, you know, when Siakam sits for 14 minutes a night, you have a guy who's a lesser version, but you don't have to change the scheme in terms of how you use your power forward there. So um, I really am curious to kind of see what that is like. And and I definitely agree that it's a question that, that will be answered throughout the next seven months or so. Yeah. Well,
0: they're definitely, uh, definitely a, uh, an interesting team to watch. And, and I think that's, that's where we got to go to your number two, most fascinating team. here. moving on from the Raptors. Who you got Jackson?
1: Yeah. So I went with the Cavs. Um, I really like their core. Um, I, I did a big piece on Darius Carlin last year over at the analyst. If people are curious about that, I'm sure you just search Darius Garland the analyst will pop up there on, on Google. Um, I, unfortunately, he's only played one game. Um, he's been out the last couple with, with some sort of injury. The Cavs are, Either just finished playing as we record this, or they're they're they still playing against the Hawks on, on Saturday evening. But um, I really like Garland. I what I I know he didn't shoot the ball very well in that first game against Memphis, but the big thing for me with Garland offensively is getting that pull-up three volume uh, increased. And I think he shot 10 threes and was like clearly hunting that line. Like he was con- he was conscientious of when he came around a ball, screener had you know had the ball in his hands. Like, where's that arc? Let me get behind it. And um, the results weren't there, but I like the quality of looks, like the process. Um you know, I'm curious kind of how do they balance the Colin Sexton, you know, uh, situation? I don't know what situation, but kind of the, the looming restrictor free agency, I guess, situation maybe is a negative connotation, but um, there's something they're going to, that's in question they are going to have to clarify in the next six months or so, um, you know, because they didn't, they didn't come to an agreement on an extension, you know, with this, you know, this before the deadline, start of the year, um, you know, they've got kind of maybe the push and pull of Larry Markin at the three as a starter versus Isaac Okoro at the three, um, you know, Evan Mobley, I mean, he's been incredible these through these first three games. I've only caught one Cavs game, but, you know, I've talked to people who watched every game and they've been similarly uh, laudatory about his game, you know, and kind of, again, how does that, you know, similar to the Scotty Barnes, Pascal Siakam, how does that, you know, blend with Jared Allen, who was a very, very good player in his own right and is having a good start to the year, but probably, you know, mostly does not have the ceiling of a guy like Evan Mobley, right? So um, just a lot of fascinating questions for this team to answer and like, you know, how do they, like, how do they space the floor enough? Right. I mean, even if you're like, I'm not a huge proponent of Larry Markin, especially at the three, but I understand why they went with him over a Coro because a Coro isn't a shooter at this point. Um, I still would be starting to just to figure out we have long-term, but at the same time, the Cavs are investing in both those guys long-term. So um, just a lot of questions and things to clarify on a team that isn't going to be great, but has a lot of players who could help this team be very good in the next three or four years
0: here's where I'm at with the Cavs. I am 1000% on board with you. I love Darius Garland. Absolutely love Darius Garland. The, the ability to score off the bounce, shoot off the bounce and play make for others out of the pick and roll is really, really rare. And I really like Evan Mobley. I struggled a lot trying to figure out what positions on the floor does he thrive? Not necessarily. Is he a four? Is he a five, but where do you put him where he's best? And Mm -hmm. he's, he's just a baller, man. (laughs) <laughs> you, you put him in a lot of different areas and he's going to be able to thrive. I would love to see more Garland and Mobley pick and roll. Mm. I think long-term, that's the bread and butter for Cleveland. They've got those two guys who are both really great and unselfish passers, have some shooting upside of potential and can play make in so many different ways. But the spacing and the the rest of the environment that those two are involved in is not conducive to getting the maximization out of that two-man game. Where, whether it's jared allen at the five and isaac okoro in the corner again that's so hard to do especially around one or the
1: other right like it's like you can have you can have the i mean the classic uh it's like the uh, the idea i think kind of the ideal right would be that garland gets trapped Moby's on the short roll and you throw it's like the steph to Draymond to iggy stuff in their prime that can work but you can't also have a Koro maybe trying to cut or be in the short corner with his defender crashing and take away that lob, like it's gotta be one or the other. Right. And so, and I like both of, like, I think, I think Allen's already proven to be a good player. And I think a somewhere is going to be, he's already very, very defensively. It's going to be a useful player at the very least with his defense, but it's not super tenable offensively with, yes. you know, with both of you guys on the floor, which is unfortunate because they're both useful players in different ways. And one, I mean, Allen's already very good. So yeah, I, I kind of see where you're coming from there. And as you mentioned in the passing, like, you know, if you want to go to, if you want to put, you want to do five, four out around that, or three out, I guess, around the pick and roll, and Mobley commit that work. You want to keep someone in a dunker spot. There's obviously value to that. Then you can do that as well. I mean, I think there was a play in that first game against Memphis where I think Mobley might have had a dump off to Allen Allen, just had a little floater, you know, on the right block or the right corner or right short corner. So, yeah, I agree that it's one or the other, and it's tough to make. It's tough to know because clearly the Cavs are, at the very least, interested in both players. They they took Okoro at fourth or fifth overall a year and a half ago or a year ago. And they just signed Allen to a, a well-deserved contract, you know, yeah. this past summer. Yeah, like
0: none of those moves in a vacuum or poor, but the summation of them is, is really a challenging fit. And, you know, this is a roster that just is very light on wings. I think that <laughs> we're accustomed to saying that wings are the kind of bread and butter to success a lot of time in the NBA because they can play multiple positions, defend a lot of different guys, and at the very least are spacing the floor on the perimeter, if if they're knocking down shots, that's why the three and D term, as overused as it's become, still has that that value and positive connotation to it. And and the Cavs just don't have many wings. They're starting Lowry Markin
1: at the three. Other they've than got other a, they've four, got a I... fuse, they've got a fuse of Coro and Markin. I think into one into one player that that would be. They'd be in a lot better place if that was a a reality for them. But yeah, they're short on wings. that's I mean, they just need more shooting too. Like I. I I've only watched one of the three Cavs games, but I really did not like what I saw from Lowry. Um, you know, he I mean the ball didn't go into his credit, like he's a better shooter than I think he was like three or thirteen Like you're Not even holding I'm not holding that against my means. I know he's a good shooter, but like the Grizzlies started three guards and they had zero issues putting Desmond Bain and D'Anthony Melton and John Morant on uh Larry Mark when the Cavs tried to periodically explode down the post. It didn't go well because Mark and it can't really post up. That's the issue, is like you don't really get the benefit of a, a tall shooter because teams can just hide smaller guys on Lowry and he can't take advantage inside. So um, yeah, it's, we, it's
0: we'll, we'll definitely be talking about tall guys getting posted up. That shouldn't be a little bit later on. There's uh, there's, there's some more coming in that regard, but I, I think the one guy we got to mention with Cleveland is Colin Sexton, because it's a little bit of a headache to try to figure out what should happen versus what will happen. And my thing is that the Cavs essentially dug their own grave in this, right? Whenever you draft a young guy and you give him a ton of opportunity to play with the ball in his hands and be the engine that drives an offense, he's going to put up numbers. And now they might have, as a result of that, priced themselves out of getting Sexton on a contract that would be positive for the team or positive for both sides to the point where now his numbers essentially earn one thing and he can use that as a lot of talking points in those negotiations and then the team's perceived value of him especially since they have a guy like garland is very different i don't know where you come down on that spectrum or or what your thoughts are long term with how sexton either fits with the Cavs or would want to stay with the Cavs. but that's that's something to definitely watch this year especially ahead of the trade deadline
1: yeah it's just it's a really interesting situation because uh, like I'm, I don't like. I think Sexton's going to be a good player. I think he's already a solid player, um, which is a good place to be in after three years. Um, you know, averaging 24 a game or whatever on a slightly above average league true shooting on the on the kind of in a tough context like that is really really impressive and should not go you know you know un, 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 unpraised. Um, but you know he's still very very poor defensively. Like I mean, last year at least was you know one of the worst you know high minutes defensive guards in the NBA by my accounts um but to his credit really really improves an off-ball score which I think helps like he's such a good cutter now um he's such an explosive kind of zero to 60 player but like I don't know I don't know how and I I never want to be like oh you can't win with this style but I struggle to see Garland and Sexton becoming so good that it's tenable to win at the highest level with those two guys is probably net negatives defensively I think Garland can be okay for a guard but guards are just generally worse defensively because they can't influence like size helps it's just it's just the reality of things and i just don't think they can get there so i never want to be like this style has to win but i just struggle to see their ceilings being high enough as players to overcome some of the kind of the limitations you have building around two guards two smaller guards um, and I, tr- I try to be careful be using smaller guards because a lot of times people just call any guards smaller but section and garland are actually a little undersized so I just, I just wonder there, like, and I think Garland's going to become a better scorer, like a little more aggressive, and I think we saw that in the one game we he's played. But you know, you need, you probably, you largely need your offensive initiator to be a guy who can reliably score twenty a game, twenty-two a game. Uh, and right now Sexton can do that, but he doesn't have the passing. Garland can do the passing, but he doesn't have the, sh- the scoring mindset yet. So really curious how that gets clarified. And um, at the end of the day, I just, you know, I, I hope that Sexton finds somewhere that's going to pay him the money he deserves. And also utilizes him idea that has the defensive infrastructure and the spacing around him to to let him thrive at, as he can, which I think is as a very useful kind of secondary handler who really thrives you know, as an off-ball scorer and and shooter. And you mentioned the floor spacing, like you know, he's a good shooter, but one, you know, he doesn't he doesn't take as many threes as you like, and two, he doesn't take as many because he's got that longer release, right? And he's sh- he's shorter too. He's, he doesn't have that that quick trigger, so. I just want to just mention that. But, yeah, I think he's, he's clearly on his way to being a, a very good player. But I just don't know if Cleveland is ideal for him. But, you know, at a bare minimum, I hope he gets the money he deserves because he's a good player and has really improved a lot of his – parts of his games in recent seasons.
0: We are pro player here at the Boxing one. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. So um, I, I'd like to see him secure the bag. But it, it always – it's that damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? He's too good of a player for the, the Cavs to just let walk away and get nothing back for him. We know that if you keep them long term, the fit of Sexton and Garland is just not very good defensively and offensively. Might have some challenges as well. So, uh, a fascinating year ahead for Cleveland. I mean, after this,
1: we're talking about a guy who's a good off-ball scorer. We talked about the cat, the, the uh, not the Cavs, excuse me, the Warriors needing a little more guard depth. Maybe like maybe we see something happen at the trade deadline. I don't know. I'm just I'm just speculating. I'm just kind of connecting some of the dots we've mentioned here. Um, like I think Sexton, you know. The Warriors have the defensive infrastructure. They have the spacing now. Um, I hadn't even thought about that until I just, just, just the, the, the sirens flared in my head. But, uh, but I, I'm just speculating, but I think that's something that might make sense for all involved. I mean, maybe give them a Moody or, you know, they don't need a Wiseman, but uh, maybe a Moody Kaminga, maybe a first round pick or something like that. I don't know exactly. I mean, Sexton's someone who should return a decent amount. But uh, just a fit that would be interesting.
0: As, watch, as... watch them trade for Wiseman now and then start him in Taco Fall at the, on the <laughs> winning spots. Watch that happen there.
1: We'll, we'll, we'll see Point Mobley there at least,
0: which will be, I can enjoy that. So. Yeah. Uh, well, Jackson, I need your help with, with this next team here. The, the, the second most fascinating team to me, I have no clue what to make of. And that's the Los Angeles Clippers because this is one of those years where their best player is probably not going to play. And when that happens... A lot of teams shut it down, right? When the Warriors went through all their injuries, they kind of shut it down and went through that process. Now they have three lottery picks on their team. The San Antonio Spurs way back when had David Robinson go down with an injury. They kind of shut it down. They end up with Tim Duncan. This Clippers team is so old. I don't think that they're built to be able to do that. And Paul George is so good. And we don't talk about him enough in that way that he can still carry this Clippers team to a solid playoff berth and even a solid playoff run. He's carried two teams offensively to the the conference finals before when he was with the Indiana Pacers. We don't talk enough about how good Paul George is. But the the huge X factors are guys who stepped up in the postseason even after Kawhi went went down, right? Reggie Jackson, he's not Mm -hmm. Mr. October, he's Mr. Inconsistent. We have no idea what to expect from him on a night-to-night basis, let alone a month-to-month basis. How is he going to play after doing so well during the postseason? Terrence Mann, great explosion of energy, really high-octane defender who can knock down some shots and get hot in a hurry. Can he be counted on to slide in and eat up 20 to 28 minutes a night in Kawhi's absence? What is Luke Kennard going to give you? Like all of these things just – blow my mind so much I have no idea what to make of the Clippers so I I took the cop-out route I put them in as the seven seed I think that's always like the safest they're good enough but like they're no one's gonna crucify me if I put them there and they miss the postseason like that's such a cop-out place to put them but I have no clue what to make of the Clippers what their plan is and just how good they're going to be the one thing I do know is Ty Lue is a very good coach
1: yeah um and I mean you mentioned Richard Jackson I mean, four of 19 in that first game of the year against the, the, the Warriors after a phenomenal postseason run. And the, the most fascinating thing to me, to harken back to our buzzword, uh, is how his role changed and his game changed over that playoffs. Like early in the playoffs, he was a spot up guy like he'd been throughout most of his Clippers tenure, wasn't very good defensively. Like I remember, like the Mavericks series, especially, I was not super enthused with his play. And then all of a sudden, the defense, became manageable became fine like he used his size fairly well he's got decent strength for a guard uh and then he was he was taking guys off the bounce he was shooting pull-ups he was hitting runners like you know he went from this spot up guy who you couldn't really trust offensively to a guy who was totally fine on that end who also was your your one b creator um and so i don't know you know i don't know what to expect either like i wish i had some better answer for you but like (laughs) i i just don't because he's never been that guy you know but I don't want to discredit that because sometimes all you need is the opportunity and to see the ball go through the hoop and you thrive in a certain role to have that self-belief to rejection's credit. He's never been shy about self-belief. He was always, you know, when he was back up backing up Russ in OKC, he felt like he was a starting point guard and luckily for him, he got to prove it for a few years in Detroit and now he's got an opportunity again. Um, and so yeah. I, like, I just want to have a better answer. I think, like, I think Terrence Mann is going to have a really, really nice year. Had a good good first game. His defense was huge at times to kind of bring the Warriors back or bring the Clippers back after Steph's ridiculous first quarter. Um, and obviously Paul George got hot in the second as well. But um, I think Tim Man's in line for a really, really good year. I think that's something that could maybe help bridge maybe let's say Reggie Jackson is better than who he was in the regular season, but not who he was down the stretch of the postseason. Uh somewhere in the middle with a little more ball handling responsibilities. of Terrence Mann is a very, very good kind of that slasher who can hit the spot up threes and also be a very good on-off and off ball defender. Um, I think you're looking at, you know, a team that's, like, I was a little lower on the Clippers as well, just because I didn't, I didn't as much as I enjoyed Reggie Jackson's run, I just couldn't buy that it. it was sustainable and that was so key to them. But I could see an outcome where there were three or four or five seed rather than maybe the seven, the six to seven to eight range I had them in. But again, that whole, both the middle class of the, the playoff races in the East and West are so jumbled and it's going to come down to, you know, who's, whose players take a leap, who stay healthy, things like that um so I I wish I had a better answer too but I I feel very similar you know I was looking at just kind of figuring out the west it was like who's Reggie Jackson going to be how much of a leap does Terrence Mann make because I think everyone you know thinks he's rightfully going to be a better player but to what length does that look like so um I just don't know and how often do they go small can they get those teams in rotation all the time like they did on their on their run especially against the Jazz and even in their wins against the Suns in the Western Conference finals they they have the Suns and Constant rotation. So, how much does Zubots play? Things like that. I'm really curious. You know, can Winslow have a resurgence. He's a guy who got some run. Clearly, still a good on-ball defender, but the offense hasn't been there in recent years. So, a lot of question marks that I wish I had more. You know, uh, definitive insight for, but we just we just don't know. And I yeah. think that's why they're so fascinating. That's why they're on this list. Yep. Yep. And and Serge Ibaka, another reclamation yeah. project. If he
0: comes in and he's that stretch five for them down the stretch, that would be huge. Um, I, I'm just. I'm all over the place with them. Eric Bledsoe, uh, uh, another reclamation project who's looked okay so far. Like, you know, what do you get out of a guy like him? But Mm -hmm. for me, and I keep going back to this, if I'm banking on a team to go to the postseason, I want to know that they have an above average player at at least three positions, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's a star player or just somebody who I know is comfortably above average. Other than Paul George, do the Clippers have a guy who's above average at their position?
1: I'd have to look at the roster really quickly, but like off the top of my head, I mean, I think, I mean, it has not been proven recently, but I think like Bledsoe, the the two regular seasons in Milwaukee, I think he was at least an above average point guard. I know he was in a great context. The playoffs were not good either year and he was downright dreadful in, in New Orleans, but I think I could see a situation where Bledsoe is a guy in the regular season at least, but as you mentioned, you're, the playoff lens where he's not been good. So I, I, I mean, maybe like maybe Reggie's an above-average point guard if he, if he plays close to where we saw him in the postseason. But um, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But yeah, Serge, you know, you mentioned them going small so much. Part of the reason they took Zubats off the floor is because they wanted to go five out, uh, and then Zubats couldn't do that. Serge can give you that, right? I mean, we don't know exactly who he's going to be health-wise. It seems like he's close to returning from some of the reports, I believe. Um yeah, they're still they're kind of ruling him out on a game to game basis. We're just encouraging um, rather than he was out until he'll be reevaluated at this, this stage. So, Surge is a guy who can, you know, has definitely become more of an offensively inclined center than a defensively inclined one, but um, allows you to remain a little bit bigger uh, and not have to go to the Marcus Morris, the five or the Terrence Mann, or whoever they play at the de facto five. Uh, and I know, like, I know Surge isn't great defensively, but a little more size and not be so reliant on just you know, the, the, the three and a half to four and a half position player, you know, masquerading as a five.
0: Yeah. Well, Jackson, we've had a, a pretty interesting, uh, you know, progression here on this podcast where we started with the Warriors and the Raptors, two teams that have started the year pretty well. Then we get to Cleveland and the Clippers who are a little bit more uncertain or maybe on Rocky territory there. But as we move on, uh, two teams that fascinated us that I, I don't think we're necessarily off to the
1: greatest starts right now.
0: So I'm, I'm going to let you take the floor here. Who's your last team that you're really fascinated by?
1: Yeah. So I, I chose the Pelicans here, um, under the caveat that I'm more, fa- more fascinated by them when they, what they look like with their all NBA caliber know They haven't looked great. I've caught one of their games. I caught their opening night game against the Sixers when they, uh, we're actually in it for a while until the Frick Corkman show began, uh, which was in, which was fascinating in its own right. But um, I really enjoy watching Zion. Of course, it's not a hot take. I also like Jonas Valanciunas. Who has admittedly struggled to start the year a little bit. Um, Devonte Graham's been very good, actually. People who follow my work know that I love Devonte. Um, you know, Najee Marshall is another guy that I think is interesting. They need more defense on that team. He brings it. But he can also be a guy who can you know attack off the catch. with a little bit of passing juice, um, or a good bit of passing juice, I would say. Uh, has some bursts as well to kind of get in the teeth of the paint. Um, Kyra Lewis is similar. He was actually really, really impressive in my my estimation defensively for a guard last year Uh, and looked pretty solid. I don't know what his numbers were against the Sixers, but his step back three had a couple of nice defensive plays has that live dribble passing ability can get into the paint. So, um, those are guys I'm curious about. And then like, can some of the young guys take a leap? You know, I mentioned Naji and, and Kyra, but like, can Jackson Hayes get there? Nikhil Alexander Walker had a really, really good first game. Uh, honestly, on both ends, like, I was really, really impressed by him. Um, was very good. at it seems like the Pelicans are going to, you know, ice more ball screens, push some more ball screens. He was really good about that on the sides. Um, and then the scoring was there, obviously, I think he had over 20 points in nine of 16 shooting at four threes. So um, can he take a leap? You know, Jackson Hayes is a guy who his first two years, has definitely gotten better each year, but there's a little bit of regression after his fresh his first year, and then turns it on late. So can um, we have a full year of growth rather than you know a step back and then a step forward? So uh, I'm sure I'm missing some other young guys. Herb Jones got got the start against the Bulls. I didn't watch that game, so I can't speak on it. But um, you know, I know he's a guy that's a very, very good defensive player, who has some passing chops as well. So uh, when Zion's back, everything is gonna look easier for the role players. I think some guys are being overextended. Um, but you know, what does the offense look like under Willie Green? As far as I know, that he's someone who was fairly involved with the Phoenix Suns offense, and the Suns are very, very fun X's and O's show. Um, still are this year. It seems like Monty Williams added some cool counters uh, or some new wrinkles. So, uh, and so that's kind of where I'm at. And then obviously, like, like can they can they just survive without Zion? Like right now they're 0 2. Can they just be in a place where they survive without this guy? Who you know isn't a top 10 player yet, but I could definitely see an outcome where he's in, he's a top 10 guy this year impact wise. So, um, you know, that's where, that's what I'm really curious about and just kind of how can they merge all this stuff? Cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of great offensive talent. Um, and then even just beyond like Zion as a player individually, like, where does he grow? Like, can he continue to get even better as a passer? Can we see he was better defensively last year, but still not good. Can we see more growth from him there? So just a lot of really interesting storylines with this team that I'm looking forward to tracking.
0: I, I like the way that you phrase it, can they stay afloat without Zion? To me, that's as much about him being hurt right now, and can they put themselves in a position to stay within striking distance of the playoffs? But it's also, what do they do in the moments that he sits, right? It seems like they're starting to build a roster a little bit more around him, which was the urgency that David Griffin had this summer. And there's a lot of people that didn't necessarily love the moves that the Pelicans have made, but they've got Zion. They've got a really good scorer in Brandon Ingram. And now a roster that probably is a little bit more complementary of those two guys than it was before. And to me, I always scratched my head on the Jonas Valanciunas thing. I really mm-hmm. like him. I like him better than a guy like Steven Adams. But the fit is very different. When he was acquired by the Pelicans, everyone was talking about, oh, he's a little bit more of a stretch shooter. Like he barely took threes last year. He made a few of them. And his percentages look fine, but he doesn't shoot them in high volume. He's not necessarily a stretch guy. He, operated- Nobody, if,
1: yeah, if he's if he's at the top of the key and Zion is you know attacking from the mid post, that help defender is still going to be in the paint, right? Like yeah. he's the result's going to be an open three for Jonas, but it's not going to be something where he's really pulling the defender away, which I think is kind of your point there, right? Even yeah, if yeah, it's not, he's even not the optimal chance. shot for the offense. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, you know, with with Valanciunas, he comes in and has a lot more of that post threat. That's where he got a lot of his touches in Memphis last year and was a great late, cl- late clock option for them. They, they really relied on Valanchunas a lot, and I don't think many people realize that. Um, and, and I always struggled to think about how would it fit where they're trying to play out of him in the post and Zion is roaming around off ball. Or can they get a lot of traction out of this? And I've recently changed my thinking on it to it being a little bit more about offensive creation in those moments that Zion's not on the floor Mm -hmm. where if they can stagger their minutes a little bit and have Jonas really run the offense and, and abuse second unit centers down on the block, that that might be a really nice source of points for the Pelicans
1: in those moments that Zion can't be on the floor. Or just like a, you know, I think, you know, Maybe, maybe, like, because I really want to see, you know, I think the four best offensive players on the Pelicans when healthy are Zion, JV, Ingram, and Devontae Graham. And so I think Devontae is, is a really good fit for Zion. Uh, and I, so I want to see maybe can we get those two to maybe stagger their minutes together and then get Ingram and Jonas. Um, because I thought Ingram really, like, I think he really struggled in that first game. Like, he's a very good scorer, but like the processing, you know, the passing reads, decision making just isn't quite there. You want him as that secondary guy. I had some good play. Like, I mean, he had, he had some shots. He's a, turned into a very good scorer, but I kind of want someone else to be able to be there for him in those minutes. I don't, you know, I don't want to just put all three. I don't want to just say, okay, it's Ingram plus a bunch of bench guys. You know, you want to put two, two of your best players together. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I viewed it. Like I, I want, I think it's to, to buoy those non Zion minutes, but I also think like, like I think it can work. It's not, I mean, it's tough to find really, really good stretch centers, right? Like, I mean, how many of them are there? um and so i think the idea right with the pelicans is you know we're going to run snug pick and rolls with those two we're going to we're going to dominate the offensive glass Jonas is such a good offensive rebounder we know zion is too i mean those those guys are probably what top five or six in terms of montages where they're, they're shooting the ball at the rim four or five times before finally scoring on a possession so um it's not ideal but yeah i think if people are advocating for some sort of stretch big lens that's not what it is for me it's just you know we're gonna everyone is everyone's embracing beyond the arc we're gonna say let's get two of the 10 best paint scores in the league obviously Zion's arguably the best him and Giannis and Giannis is up there as well too so that's where I see the fit working when they're together but I think it's also as you mentioned about can we can we just make things work in the these 17 minutes a night that Zion's off the floor or the the however many games he misses until and obviously I don't think they knew maybe they maybe maybe they knew that Zion was out you know when they made that trade but um, it's about just making things work in the times that Zion's off the floor and so yeah the it doesn't resonate with me if you're talking about you know he's a stretch big in a way in the way Steven Adams did. It said he has more self creation than than Adams does, and um, he bring he brings a similar kind of rebounding prowess that was the allure of the maybe the Adam Zion fit. But where I'm curious, kind of where do you stand defensively because these these guys switch teams in Adams and and Jonas. And I was on a, a Grizzlies podcast earlier this week, and um, pretty divergent context in terms of surrounding defensive personnel. Um, and Adams wasn't very good defensively last year, um, but he didn't get a lot of help. Jonas, I thought, was pretty good in his two years in Memphis, but gets a lot of help for the most part. Um, obviously, Jaws a long way to go, but when you have Dylan Brooks and D'Anthony and Melton and whatnot. So where do you kind of stand on Jonas as a defender? I'm curious, kind of, how do you think he can, if at all, kind of help bring up the defensive uh, prowess of this team, which doesn't really exist currently.
0: Yeah, it, it's a chicken and the egg type of thing with me, right? Like, is the Grizzlies defense a top 10 defense last year because of Valanciunas, or is Valenciunas a good defender because he's within Memphis's scheme and surrounded by those guys? I, I don't really know where I weigh in on that one yet. I think icing ball screens on the side is really, really smart. Keep Valenciunas lower. He's very good with angles, not necessarily an expert shot blocker but really good, and this is an underrated skill in the NBA, at not leaving his feet to challenge shots that he can't get and staying positionally sound to clean the defensive glass. That is so valuable to me because I would rather have a guy like that who plays angles, forces the right shot, and then is in position to clean up the misses than a guy like Hassan Whiteside who's going to leave his feet every every time he can. And maybe he blocks three out of ten, but the other seven are put-back dunks. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I like about Valanchunas. They have enough rebounding chops with a guy like like Zion. I think Ingram's a fine rebounder. Trey Murphy with his length should be able to come in and, and be decent in some of those roles. And Najee Marshall is, is a, a solid rebounder too. So I think at the very least, New Orleans is going to finish possessions the first time better than they have in the past. I'd also like to see... Um, what they look like without Lonzo Ball, because I think he was a great connector piece for them defensively in a way where I'm not convinced Devonte Graham can really handle a lot of those loads on the perimeter. So with Valanciunas, he's going to be facing a lot more dribble penetration than he did back in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And I'm not so sure, you know, I've been coaching for a little bit of time, but I'm not great at this whole thing. I've never seen a scheme to teach, completely keep guys out of the paint. Like if you don't have great perimeter defenders, other teams are going to find ways to get into the lane, no matter what your pick and roll scheme is, no matter what defensive coverage you're running. And to me, that's, that's where it comes down for the Pelicans. They just don't have the perimeter defenders still to keep everybody out of the lane.
1: Yeah. And I think even with Lonzo, I think like he, he is a guy who definitely was not utilized ideally defensively, right? Like they had him at the point of attack so often, and he can be a good on-ball defender against lesser ball handlers, but when they had they re- routinely had him guarding the best creator on every on the other team, it's just not his role. He's not very good navigating screens. He's pretty weak for a guard, and so that put both him and Steven Adams in tough positions. And so I, I wonder now with a little more like I think they I think the Pelicans have more options now. Like you know, we mentioned Kyra earlier, Herb Jones, Naji. Um, Devontae isn't a good defender, but like I think he's I, mean, I don't really want him to point him attack, but I think he's okay. He's just is so undersized, yeah. um, which goes into the defense. But like if you I mean, hypothetically, if you gave him a six-four frame, I think he'd be pretty solid. Um, but I wonder like to what degrees can they just put really, really good defenders around Zion uh and say, okay, we're gonna just we're gonna see to what lengths Zion can build up our offense in a given lineup and make that work. And so like I, I don't love it because I don't want Zion to have to face a a nine man paint every play. But I do think like Zion gives you a little bit of luxury there because he's such a good self creator. And like, you know, he didn't have, they did not have good spacing last year and put up one, he was one of the best scorers in the league last regular season. Like, I mean uh, like unequivocally, like he just, he just was by the numbers and didn't even look at the context. Like he's not like, he's not a guy who benefited from context. Right. So I wonder kind of what, to what degrees they try. And I, I would honestly be trying to throw a lot of this to, to see what sticks, you know, to, you know, can we, can we have, is it better that, it, you know, because I think they could have a top three offense if they wanted to, but is it like, do we maybe say, let's not go for the top, let's not go for the fourth ranked offense and the 28th ranked defense. Let's go for the ninth ranked offense and the 17th ranked defense. And then all of a sudden we're right there in the playoff hunt. So um, a lot of interesting pieces that I think will have better context for them when Zion returned, which is not, which is not some groundbreaking idea when your best player your best player makes things all fall, fall together easier, yeah. connect easier. So I'm really curious about that because they have some better defenders, but um, when you're playing both Zion and Ingram a lot of minutes, you're going to be in a tough spot. So I wonder kind of how much can they, can they mask their deficiencies. Even Ingram is a guy who in ISO situations can be pretty solid, but it's the off ball stuff, the screen navigation where he really, really falls short. So really fat I just, I'm just fascinated to see how they put all that together because I think there's a way where this team could be pretty good, but I just don't know and. We don't even know when Zion's coming back, which is the the big thing we've been mentioning throughout this entire team segment.
0: Yeah, it it seems like there's a playoff or bust mentality in New Orleans a little bit because it's year three. A couple other guys, Koff, Trey, Young, have made leaps and carried franchises in year three as they've gotten used to the NBA. And Zion not being here at the beginning of the season is going to put them in a tough spot because they're going to either have ground that they have to make up for or integrating in a completely new scheme and style, because you have to change everything you do when you have a guy like Zion on the floor. And it's for the better. It's 100% for the better, but it's, it might have some growing pains that go with it. You know, the, the Pelicans, if they don't make the playoffs this year, it's easy to see a situation where Zion is probably unhappy and trying to move himself out of town. Do you blame the Pelicans for that? You can't because a lot of the reason that they were in this hole and couldn't make the postseason, most likely is because they missed their star player for X amount of games at the start of the season. And, and there's no one to blame in that situation, but it, it's one of those circumstances where if they end up 10th or 11th in the Western conference this year and don't break through that barrier and Zion plays 52 games, that's a very big, what do we do now situation? Because Are we good enough with Zion to to do all this stuff? Do we have the right pieces around him to just run it back and and really bank on his health being what pushes us forward? Does he request a change? Do they really have enough sample size to know what they need to change or address in the off season? Just so many different questions that that you could pass around there. And, And Jackson, in the interest of time, just want to go to our last team on here. That's really fascinating because for me, this is fascinating in the, Are we watching a slow implosion take place? And that's the Dallas Mavericks, a team that has, by my measure, the most fun young player to watch in the NBA, in Luka Doncic. He is a future MVP, a dominant player with the ball in his hands, and popped offensively during his first few years in the NBA because he had a system that was catered around him. There weren't great players with him in Dallas, and he didn't have a secondary creator to alleviate some of that burden but at least he was surrounded by shooters in a five-out system with the ball in his hands a ton, and they, they won games because of him. I mean, he's a game seven bounce or two away from moving the, the Dallas Mavericks on his back completely to the second round of the, of the Western Conference playoffs. Now they go out and they hire Jason Kidd. And the flashing lights were on with me as soon as they, they made that hire. Are we getting Milwaukee kid? Are we getting Brooklyn kid who really didn't have great feel over his scheme, his spacing, his rotations? A lot of it was a mess. And all reports are out there. Everyone in L.A. loved him, gave him the benefit of the doubt, said he'd grown and improved a lot. But we're seeing a lot of those same issues where shot selection, offensive styles are outdated, are not putting Doncic in enough of a position to succeed, and they're throwing possessions into Dorian Finney-Smith in the post and Chris Stapp's Porzingis in the post. And it seems to me like Jason Kidd is just hell-bent on playing the style that he played in and he knows really well and wants to swear and prove that that's how you can still win in today's NBA. And to me, that does a disservice to a rare gem like Luca, somebody who's just so talented that you got to give him the ball and go and worry only about putting him in the best positions to succeed that every Dorian Finney-Smith post-touch should be replaced by something with Luka. And again, I, I know there's so many different facets to this roster and the way that they're made up that might make them a Western Conference contender or even a fringe playoff team. But to me, I just, I can't stop scratching my head and wondering, are we just slowly watching someone sabotage the best young years of Doncic?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's so... Head scratching that you know, some of the reports that came out as to why they moved that, uh, why Rick Carlisle and the DeMaz part of ways is because Luca didn't like kind of the, the micromanaging style that Rick Carlisle you know uh, uses. And we have all those reports from from kids' tenure as head coach that he was even more of a micromanager and doesn't have the X's and O's exploits that, that at least you know Carlisle can lean on, or the, tact, the tactical brilliance that Carlisle shown for so many years. And so, that just didn't really make sense to me um you know they're playing right now against the Raptors as, as we record this they're up five in the middle of third um but uh I, I mean their first game against the Hawks like I I didn't the offensive philosophy I didn't you know I didn't like Luca's was off the ball more they were posting guys up as you said like I'm fine with Luca in the post because I think that's something that he'd really grown this game as, as of last year um but it didn't feel like there was a lot beyond okay we're gonna get the ball in the post we're gonna run screen and rollers we're gonna put the ball in the hands of Luca and KP mostly um but like and and I like I got like you know that, that one Dorian Finney Smith post up I got there trying to exploit Treyon, but like that's really, like I don't know like you don't that's what the Hawks want right like they want they want to beat you into that and it worked I don't think I as far as I recall I don't remember DFS well, scoring that and it's,
0: it's back to your point on Lowry Markin and earlier right like it, at some point it's not a mismatch that's in your favor even though you have the size advantage, if that's not a guy who's really good at scoring and, and abusing that advantage down low, Dorian Finney Smith is not that guy.
1: Yeah. And so I just, yeah, I just watched that game and I just came away wondering, like, what was the offensive philosophy here? Like, when I'm watching these, all these different new coaches around the league, I'm trying to figure out, like, what are they trying to do? Like, that's my first year and I'm watching these early games, early season games. And I, like, I understood kind of what the Mavs were trying to do, but I didn't think it was anything beyond just like, post-ups and pick and rolls. Like, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm never not going ever to be like, Oh, I could do that. But like, it doesn't really seem very like hard to just say, Luca, you're a brilliant pick and roll player. And also gonna play in the post do that. Like you want to make things easier on him. And so, and then defensively. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't, I mean, they were in a tough spot. I mean, the, the Hawks are so good offensively for the most part. Um, but yeah, I just didn't love that. And then just generally speaking, like clearly when they traded up for Luca Donch they recognized how good he could be and how good he already was but the subsequent moves haven't really reflected understanding of kind of where he thrives and how he thrives. Like he needs a secondary handler. We saw that like how many games throughout his career has he had, where he has 28 points through his first 14 minutes and ends up with 34 because he goes three of 12 the rest of the way, because he's just exhausted. And so like, you need like, and you're never privy to the free discussions. Like I know they were, they were trying to get Kyle Lowry. I would have loved to see Spencer Dinwiddie there. I know Dinwiddie isn't a great on ball player or off ball player, excuse me, but just someone to, you know, who can create for himself uh, is really, really useful. We saw how awesome Dean he was, you know, had 34 against the Pacers on Friday. Um, I would love to see that. Um, it seems like they really want Goran Dragic, uh, but based on my one game of watching the Raptors, it doesn't feel like the, the threshold necessary as a secondary creator at this point, just because of Dragic's injuries and age. Um, so there's that. And like, I don't think the Chris Apporzingas trade was bad in value, I just don't think Porzingis was the guy that should have tabbed to be his co-star. Like, I think it could still be a trade where they, they get more on court impact from what they have now than what they traded. And it's still not be the move because Chris Tapp is on a rookie max, uh, which consumes a lot of your cap and just hamstrings, how much you can do moving forward. And so it's just been weird. You know, I mentioned the kid hire mentioned all the things I've referenced, like clearly they got it with Luca initially, but since then, it hasn't quite felt like they've, they've got it anymore. And so it's just weird, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just such a strange situation that, you know, as we mentioned, the, the first game was not encouraging for year four of Luka and kind of his, his future in, in Dallas in terms of winning at a high level. Yeah, I
0: agree. And, and Rick Carlisle was, was great there because he maximized all the other guys around Luka, right? Like that, that roster is probably not the most wisely put together to maximize Doncic's strengths. But at the very least, Rick Carlisle knew how to get the best out of everybody offensively. And for me, that ceiling was almost hit by winning 48 games and pushing somebody to the seven games in the Western Conference playoffs. That's almost a ceiling for that roster. And I don't think Kid has the same ability to maximize it, which causes me to worry a little bit. But I also want to wanna look at the long term for Dallas, which you know, you mentioned the fact that they haven't brought in a ton of great guys that are going to get the most out of Luca over the last few off seasons next year, his money kicks in. And with him and Porzingis on the books, it's a lot harder to swing trades, to eat salary, to do whatever they would have to do to sign or trade for another really good player. Another thing that they're missing are valuable young players and assets that they can trade away that are somewhat attractive when they make a deal for somebody who can help them win a little bit more right now. And part of the reason they're missing that they traded one away in order to to get Luca in that Atlanta Hawks trade. And then they completely struck out in last year's draft so far, not getting Tyrell Terry and having to release him after one year is, is tough. Josh green looks solid, but not necessarily the guy that you would throw in as a centerpiece of, of a trade as, as that young asset that anybody else wants to acquire. I'm not sure where they go to upgrade this roster from a, a trade standpoint because who's attractive out there that, that on their team that they would be able to to get interest in from from another buddy around around the league and, and what's so concerning in that regard is that when the, the value of Doncic's new supermax contract kicks in they need to be really shrewd with their signings because they're getting closer to the, to their salary cap ceilings and it's it's that long-term worry for me where this was the year to show that Luca was going to be great and have a lot of people want to come to Dallas. And I just, I, I'm so worried that they've sabotaged that.
1: Right. I think, you know, we, we harken back to the, you know, the other Southwest Conference division team that has, you know, a superstar contract, like the benefit of having an MVP caliber player, which Luca is Zion is more of an all NBA caliber is how much easier it makes team building around that. Like you can take risks. You can, you can sign a guy. who You can trade for a guy who has a big, who is a superstar on a superstar worthy deal um You know, in, in general context of the NBA, obviously, ideally they'd be worth, they'd be getting it even more because of the revenue they drive. But like, yeah, I just, I mean, look at the ro- look at the rotation today against the Mavericks. Like, their youngest, I mean, the young guy there is Jalen Brunson, I think he's an a under- agent this after this year, if I recall. He might have signed an extension. I couldn't find it, but like. Everyone else—it's Dorian Finney-Smith, Hardaway, Dwight Powell, Porzingis, Luca, Kleba, Bullock, Sterling Brown, Willie Cauley-Stein. Those are the nine guys around the rotation. In the rotation around Jalen Brunson, there's no there's no young guy who's in their first or second or third year that like you're like let's like not to showcase, but like this guy's in rotation. He's a good player. Maybe a team that is eyeing the long term a little more would have even more use for him. You know, like you look. let's just say the Sixers, for instance, who have a five and a maxi, and obviously they can criticize the Sixers for the things they've done wrong, but like they at least have some young guys in the rotation that you're like, okay, yeah, maybe we could use these guys to upgrade in the immediate while they could go flourish elsewhere with a larger role. The Mavs don't have that. I mean, Josh Green, you know, is he's played a little bit in the rotation last year uh, at times when the Mavs were decimated by COVID, unfortunately, but uh, yeah, I just, they don't have that. And they just whiffed on the, I mean, I think people were comparing, who would they, they drafted was it Hinton and Terry last year and then Josh Green
0: so they drafted Josh Green uh, Tyrell Terry and Tyler Bay I believe and then signed mm-hmm. Nate Hinton yeah, on, on draft
1: yeah and then you can compare that to to the Grizzlies for instance so I any mean, Grizzlies are one of the gold standards as of late for drafting but you know Desmond Bain is a starter for them right now Xavier Tillman didn't play in the first game um, but he is a guy who played big minutes at times in the regular season especially last year and was, was good in that role and so it's like you have to, if you're not going to make a big splash, you have to nail things on the margins and the Mavs just have missed on so many moves beyond Luca. Like, again, I, I think they got, they, they got good value on court impact from the Christopher Ridingas trade, but I just struggle to see that being the ideal move. And so it's like, it just is really tough. They just made so many mistakes when they've had, like they've had all this wiggle room and they kind of eat it all up over the last few years
0: and they still owe their 2023 pick to the knicks in that porzingis trade so yeah. it's as far as future assets go they're already minus one in that category
1: in so they can't to- trade they couldn't trade a pick until 2025 right that was, given the stepian rule if, I, if right. i'm correct right here.
0: now at, on draft day they can trade the the 20 yeah. this year they, they they really can after after the fact and have one in, in principle but they can't trade it as an asset anything
1: before 2025 doesn't serve them for the trade deadline right if they're trying right. I mean, that's right if they're if they, if somehow they off to Luca's, you know, this incredible player like he would expect, but maybe even better. And they're sitting pretty at the trade line. They can't trade this year's pick to upgrade and maybe get to that next step because, you know, I think there, there are very few players who can maybe rise above these roster construction that they have, maybe the perceived poor coaching, or at least so far, the poor coaching like Luca can, but they don't, they can't really bid on that because they traded their, their first round pick for a guy who. Uh, has been to the least inconsistent during his his Mavericks tenure. In, in and
0: the importance of trading that pick before the draft is that Luka Doncic's contract is going to kick in you know, following the, the free agency when that trade would be approved. So if they're going to make a splash for a big player, you would want to do it before that point. You would want to do it by this February deadline. And because they can't, like you said, trade a pick
1: before the 2025 pick, that becomes a lot harder to do. And they don't have the young players to, <laughs> they don't have anything that, you know, it's, it's a little easier when you have a, a bevy of young enticing players, but they don't have that either. So yeah, they're, they're fascinating in a, a much different way than maybe the other teams we've mentioned it's a little less uh, optimistic on their end beyond, beyond the reality of having a perennial MVP candidate for the next at least five years in terms of, you know, contract or six years, excuse me.
0: They're, they're going to be able to win. 40 games and and do what they do and and I don't think anyone's saying they're going to be a 25 win team but at the very least there are some concerns going on in Dallas in a way that are going to make them fascinating to watch so I know we could have picked all 30 teams here Jackson to go over but we got a good six in there and 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 had some lively uh, discussion back and forth but before we let you get out of here just let the people know where can they find their work what are you up to lately just tell us what you got going on.
1: Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore JJF. I'm watching tons of games throughout the entire day, I'm tweeting thoughts, clips, all that. And then you can find all all the places I write and podcasts are linked in my bio there. But if you're not on Twitter, most of my work is at Dime Up Rocks, Liberty Ballers, Basketball News, and the Analyst. Um, I've only written a couple of things as the season began, but we're trying to do some pretty fun stuff throughout the season as I get settled in. But Appreciate having me on, Adam, and uh, this was fun to talk about some some teams in depth. that I'm looking forward to to watch. Maybe maybe I'm not looking forward to watch the Mavs, but but uh, but Luca can can salvage it when he's when he's doing his thing. So uh, appreciate having me on. We always enjoyable to talk to him about NBA basketball. For sure. Thank you for joining us, Jackson. And uh, we'll stay up with your your work
0: that's coming out soon.